Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Here at SEAC Stories, we are privileged to work with multilingual researchers from across Australia and Southeast Asia. We know that fluency in another language, be it Tagalog, Vietnamese, Khmer, Indonesian, or any of the other languages spoken in Southeast Asia, opens up an entirely new world of collaborators, resources, and archives. Today, we're going to be taking a closer look at this idea of a multilingual archive by focusing on a new discovery project being led by a number of researchers at the University of Sydney. One of these researchers is Professor Adrian Vickers, Professor of Southeast Asian Studies. His research focuses on the cultural history of Southeast Asia, and he is perhaps best known for his pioneering work on Indonesian historiography and art history through publications such as the highly popular Bali, A Paradise Created, A History of Modern Indonesia, and Balinese Art, Paintings and Drawings of Bali. As part of this research, he has also created a virtual museum of Balinese paintings, and more recently he has published with Associate Professor Julia Martinez, The Pearl Frontier, Indonesian Labour and Indigenous Encounters in Australia's Northern Trading Network. Adrian, you're part of a team of researchers working on this new Australian Research Council discovery project called Opening Australia's Multilingual Archive. Congratulations. What is the project looking at? Okay, it's bigger than Ben-Hur. It's attempting to rewrite Australian history using sources other than English or non-Indigenous sources in languages other than English. So it's going to draw on materials that are mainly in Australian archives, but also in overseas sources and try and bring all that together to pull Australian history apart and rewrite it. That sounds very ambitious. Can you tell me, you you said that you're looking at sources other than English and other than Indigenous. So what languages is the project looking at? Our research team, which is mainly based here in the School of Languages and Cultures, brings together as main languages German, French, Italian, Chinese, Dutch and Indonesian in my case, and also Japanese. But some of our colleagues who are indeed very multilingual themselves also have other languages such as Russian. And as well, what we're hoping to do as we go along is to hire a number of research assistants. So when we get to the later period, what we'll do is hire somebody who's a Vietnamese speaker to help out with those materials. So the languages that have been chosen, and you've listed quite a few there, are they indicative of those early influences dating back 250 years in the past 250 years of Australian history? Yes, generally they are. There's other languages that we can draw on. So, for example, none of our team is a Greek speaker, but we do have colleagues in the Greek department here who we can draw on for assistance. But otherwise, yes, certainly there's a whole lot of material, particularly from the early years of white settlement and going back, of course, to the mapping of Australia and European encounters in Australia. There's material in Dutch, French, and then later on in the 19th century, quite a lot of German material. And we're interested to find out how far back the Chinese sources go as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
One of the project's aims is to explain the basis of what an Australian community might be when this idea is challenged and enriched through the multiple perspectives offered by non-English sources. So what sort of fresh perspectives do you anticipate when it comes to the use of Indonesian language sources? Let me go back a step and talk about the fresh perspectives, first of all. So what we usually see when you look at the mainstream of history writing in Australia is that accounts are based on a normative assumption that everybody is of British descent, starting with other languages. It flips how we think about Australia moving away from that idea of the Anglo-Saxon norm. The first two topics that we'll be looking at are settlement and national boundaries. And so from an Indonesian perspective, the national boundaries question is immediately a huge one because what it does is to say, well, where does Australia stop? Where are the borders of Australia? And so if you're looking at New Holland which in the 19th century you still have Dutch newspapers talking about New Holland and Van Diemen's Land and so on. If you start to get that perspective and see Australia as it was seen from the then Netherlands East Indies, then that gives you a different sense of what makes up the entity of Australia and the continent of Australia. And do these boundaries exist only on land or are they also boundaries or frontiers across the ocean? Oh, no, this is very much about maritime boundaries. Obviously, the PNG West Papua boundary is a land boundary, but most of the others are maritime boundaries. And that's where you also get into a number of different archives. There's material in the Dutch archives in The Hague, but also in the British archives where you have an Australian sea captain or a sea captain from Australia who ends up in prison in Makassar. And then there's this major international incident. Uh, he's obviously a dodgy character and there's a number of people involved in slavery, blackbirding and all kinds of things there and governments trying to control some of those activities. But then later on, even up until the 1920s and 1930s, you had Australians living in eastern Indonesia on islands like Aru and Seram and Bhutan, setting up their own estates and really not taking that much notice of the Dutch authorities at the time. So it's islands, beaches, it's all of those areas, all those shoals and reefs that are still the subject of fishing boundaries and current disputes about oil control and all those kind of things. All of those are caught up in those questions of who's controlling, where are the boundaries, where are the borders. And if we're thinking about who's controlling, does that help us point towards where those archives might be? You said there are some in The Hague. Where else are you looking for these sources? For sure. So there's lots of stuff still in the in the Australian archive, and I think uh, particularly for the early years, it's probably the New South Wales State Archives that are going to be more important, but then later on the National Archives. But at the same time, the Public Records Office and... Um, so each of the state archives, the National Archives of Australia, the Dutch archives, uh, but then you also get other interests. So going back to the story of the pearl frontier and the pearl shell industry, it wasn't just Dutch and Indonesians and Australians trying to gain control, but Japanese were in there. 
So the Japanese were establishing their bases in the southern Philippines, in Mindanao, and in eastern Indonesia, in Bhutan, and trying to get a stakehold in Aru. But then also uh, Japanese set up in the Torres Strait on Thursday Island. So that takes us to the Japanese archives. That is amazing. I didn't know that the Japanese were in the Torres Strait at all. And I can see why you want to have scholars and researchers with Japanese facility as well as Indonesian and German and Dutch. I mean, together it's one plus one equals five in this case with all the different languages. Yes, it's an amazingly complex story. That's why also one of the things we wanted to move away from was the idea that there were all of these separate so-called ethnic communities that were autonomous and off to one side from the main Anglo-Saxon story. So that's why we're not just doing Italians in Australia or Greeks in Australia. Those kinds of histories have been done very well. But what we wanted to do was a kind of joined up story. And even when you think about languages, languages don't equate necessarily to ethnic groups. So where you had people setting up German language newspapers in Australia, they were catering to not just people from Germany, but people from Eastern Europe and different kinds of communities. And likewise, the French language newspapers in Australia and the French sources were not just speaking to people from France. Um, the French sources immediately then connect us up with the Pacific. So I imagine that Australia's Indonesian language resources are quite considerable in our, in our different archives, at the State Archive, at the National Archives. So the first of the resources is something that Paul Thomas, who's done some great research on this, found. And it's a letter that was given to Governor Arthur Phillip. It's in the New South Wales State Library in the Mitchell Collection. It's kind of a letter of introduction, but written in Malay, in Jawi script. Because that was the thing about the early colony of Australia was really founded on the idea that there would be a kind of backup through the connection with the Netherlands East Indies. So, for example, when Bly did his epic voyage after the mutiny and he sailed from east of Fiji through Torres Strait, he went to Kupang because the Netherlands East Indies was the place where you could find support from a, a neighbouring colony. So likewise, Philip, he's coming to see Australia via a Netherlands East Indies connection. He has this letter of introduction, which of course was reasonably useless. I mean, there were some Aboriginal peoples who indeed had contact with Indonesia and spoke a mixture of probably Makassarese and may have had a little bit of Malay, but it's fairly doubtful whether this letter of introduction would have been of any use at all. But it does say something about the mindset. And then later on, so again, Paul Thomas has done research on early translation and the idea that for Northern Australia you needed somebody with a knowledge of Malay to navigate. So, for example, when Flinders is going all around Australia and naming Australia, it's actually a Makassarese sailor who's giving him all the navigation guides. Yeah, that idea of having local pilots and navigators is really interesting. But were those 
I know with Cook, that was documented to an extent through the different maps that were produced, but were there resources or documents produced as a result of Flinders' exchange with his Marcusson pilot, or how is it represented in the archive, these sort of exchanges? I haven't actually looked that much at the Flinders archive, but what we do know is that there's drawings of, I think it's Paboso is the navigator, and uh, there's sources in the National Library in the the logbooks and so on that yeah. talk about all of those kinds of encounters. And um, even going back to Banks and Cook, of course, their logbooks and their diaries have lots of records of their Indonesian encounters as well as their Indigenous and Pacific encounters. So interesting. I want to ask you about teaching and learning other languages in Australia, how important is it for researchers and scholars and students to be able to speak more than one language in order to really understand representations of Australia? The thing about that question is that in some countries you would not even have to ask it. So if you're in Switzerland, you immediately start from an assumption that everybody speaks a multiplicity of languages and that if you're going to really communicate and effectively get on with all the people around you, actually be able to read all the different sources and have access to a whole range of not just information but ways of seeing the world, then you need other languages. Once upon a time, it used to be compulsory if you went to university to study another language. And in some ways, what's happened within school systems and within university systems is that we've very much narrowed our frame of reference and then that becomes reflected in the media. Somehow our mindset has been framed around this idea of the US and Britain and Australia as a continuity and the rest of the world as less significant. So I think part of what we want to do in this research is to shake that mindset. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Obviously, the project is seeking to make important interventions in representations of Australian history, but do you also anticipate it making an intervention in terms of the importance of learning other languages? Yeah, so that's where we started from. What we want to do in terms of our engagement with our students and I think if you work on other areas like you and I both do, you know that you can't do anything without having at least a couple of other languages. Going back to when I first started doing my research on Bali, obviously I had to have Indonesian, but when I was doing research on Bali in the 70s, there were a lot of people who didn't speak Indonesian. And if I wanted to look at any of the sources, I had to read Dutch, but then some of them were also in French. So in order to really come to terms with a place, you you just really need that. So I think that's one of the problems, and and I think this is a problem reflected both in history writing but also in the ways then that people think about education and knowledge is that people who work on history in Australia often don't work on places where you don't need non-English sources, which is very problematic. But then it also means that all of the kinds of approaches to other disciplines in sociology or in philosophy even, that that's all also based on the assumption that, oh, we can just do this through English sources. I was going to ask you about translation. 
can we just rely on Google Translate? (laughs) How far will that take us? Depending on what language it may or may not get you somewhere, but the idea that we can just have machines to interpret for us is a pretty crazy one. One of the things too is that really the issue of translation is that moving from one language to another, it's not an easy process. It's not transparent because there are multiple ways that you can interpret something Certainly some languages are easier to translate into and out of than others, even when you're translating backwards and forwards from Indonesian. So Indonesian generally doesn't mark gender in pronouns, so you have to immediately decide on gender, but then you have to decide on tense. Do you translate something into past tense or present tense because it's not marked in Indonesian? So translation can be a minefield, and one of the things we want to do is look at different sources that have been translated and look for where there might also be areas of error or slippage that might also reveal something about misunderstandings that were happening around different multilingual encounters. Those slippages might have become part of the way that we understand that history or that culture or that time and place and have become part of English language sources, even though they're based on errors. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always those kinds of mistakes and misinterpretation. I mean, going back to the Indigenous naming thing, you know, the idea of what's this area and what might be a greeting in Indigenous language is then interpreted as a name of a place or something like that. Yeah, you get all those kinds of errors from the basics to more subtle areas. The project has only just started. How long has it got to run? It's going to run for four years and we're looking at it in different stages. So the first year we're looking at 19th century settlement and then leading up to the making of Australian boundaries and white Australia policy and so on. And then in the second year, we'll look particularly at the wars, World War I and World War II, and the periods in between, and internment, because there are so many people from different countries. So one of our colleagues working with the State Library of New South Wales has already worked on internment documents from World War One in German and the stories that they tell. So people who were passing through um, or stuck in camps in Australia for periods of time, but also German Australians who were interned. There's all kinds of stories there. I just did a preliminary survey in the National Archives and the Kaura records, we usually think about Japanese being interned in Kaura, but of course there were also the Indonesian political prisoners who were there for a while, but there were also Chinese interned in Kaura. So we want to again join up those stories and see what the different documents in different languages tell us about who these people were and you know, what they were doing, what their experiences were. It's such a great project. I want to congratulate you again and wish you all the best as it proceeds over the next four years. Can't wait to see what it turns up. Thanks. Yeah, we're looking forward. It's so exciting to to be delving into all of these sources and there's um, lots of new things to come. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, 
please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.